Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We are coming off of an excellent week with our Theopolis Fellows. On Friday night, we graduated 12 of our Fellows from the most recent program after a great long week of vigorous worship and liturgical studies. In this episode, we begin a new series looking at some of the New Testament epistles. And here, Peter Lighthart and Alistair Roberts have a discussion about Pauline studies before we get into the book of Colossians in a couple of weeks. Specifically, they'll focus on the new perspective on Paul and writers such as Dunn, E.P. Sanders, N.T. Wright, Richard Gaffin, and others. As always, do check out those show notes. Specifically, we'd love for you to sign up for our weekly newsletter in Media's Race. That newsletter comes with a weekly word from Peter Lightheart, free resources, and easy access to our videos and weekly articles. Also, please do subscribe to our YouTube channel, where we are putting out weekly videos on Bible liturgy and culture. And right now, we are in the midst of a series on a biblical theology of music with Peter Lightheart. With that, we want to thank you so much, as always, for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing Pauline studies and the new perspective on Paul. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Jeff Myers, who is usually with us, is uh, not able to join us because of pastoral issues in his home church. I ask you to pray for Jeff as he deals with a number of challenging concerns in his church. We have Brian Motes, of course, is in the background. Uh, we are beginning a new series uh, today. Uh, where for the next number of months, we're going to be dealing mainly with New Testament epistles. Uh, eventually, we're going to get to the epistle of James. Jeff Myers has just finished a, a, a commentary on the epistle of James after working on James for many years, and uh, we're very much looking forward to that commentary. In a uh, recent podcast, Jeff described a little bit about what he was doing in that commentary that's different from other commentaries on James. So we'll eventually get to that. But uh, before we do, we're going to look at a, a Pauline epistle. And uh, we're going to spend the next uh, couple of months going through the epistle to the Colossians. It's a short epistle, but it's dense, as all of Paul's writings are. So this will occupy us for some time. And in order to introduce that, before we get to the text of Colossians per se, we want to spend a little time in this episode talking about Pauline studies and Paul's theology and Paul's uh, letters and so on, just as a general topic. And then uh, we'll do an introductory podcast uh, episode on Colossians and uh, the problems surrounding Colossians in the next episode. Uh, But today we're talking about Pauline studies. and, And of course, when Pauline studies come up in contemporary discussions, the uh, so-called new perspective on Paul often comes into play, and I, I'll just start out talking a little bit about that. Uh, there are other movements, more recent movements in Pauline studies that we might want to touch on, but this is the one that uh, has gotten the most play and the most uh, has been the most controversial. Although uh, described by the name "new perspective on Paul," it's it's a misnomer now in a couple of ways. It's it's more like a middle-aged perspective on Paul because. Uh, it's uh, you know started with uh, E.P. Sanders' books, which were published in the late 70s. Many of the people who are engaging in Pauline studies today weren't even alive when uh, those uh, first books were published. And it really, I think, it's it's helpful to think about the new perspective on Paul as fundamentally a new perspective on first-century Judaism. The views of Paul that are expressed by people associated with this movement and this this scholarly enterprise. 
the views are quite diverse. They're not all on the same in the same position. E.P. Sanders has particular understanding of what Paul is actually teaching. N.T. Wright has his own understanding, which is different from Sanders, and he's critical of Sanders. James Wright, uh, James Dunn rather, uh, has his, his own different perspective on Paul. Richard Hayes is kind of associated with the new perspective, but kind of not. So there's there's a variety of different positions about what Paul's theology is about that are all working within the paradigm of the new perspective. And what unites them is not really a, a view on Paul or a theology per se. And that's one of the mis, misconceptions that people have about the new perspective. It's not, it's not a theological position or any kind of creed. It's an academic research project. And the thing that unites the research project is a revised understanding of what first century Judaism was about. And that's where the new perspective takes its origins from E.P. Sanders' books on first century Judaism, where he argues that contrary to Protestant understandings of first century Judaism, traditional Protestant understandings, first century Jews taught a theology of grace. They did not teach a theology of works or of merit, but their theology was a theology of grace. Salvation was by grace, and the law functioned as a guide for Jews who have uh, received the grace of election and been brought into the people of God. And then the law teaches them how to live, and the law also provides measures to restore them to fellowship if they break the commandments of God. So the the law is not given as a way to, this is a distinction that Sanders makes, the law is not given as a way to get into covenant with God. You get into covenant with God by election. God elected Abraham and elected Israel as a nation. And then you get into, as an individual, you get into covenant by circumcision. You're introduced into that elect people. And the law is there not to, not to enable you to get in, but it's a, a law is there in order to guide you about staying in. It's, it's the way of life of those who are already in covenant with God. So that's the paradigm that uh, uh, Sanders describes by the phrase covenant gnomism. The law functions within a covenantal context, but the covenant is a covenant that is established on the unmerited grace of God extended to Abraham and extended to Israel. The question then becomes, the reason why it becomes a new perspective on Paul is because if, if Sanders is true or mostly true about first century Judaism, or even if he's only partly true about first century Judaism, then that means that you have to reassess what Paul is doing. Paul is often formulating positions in contrast to Judaism. He often is critical of the law in certain respects. He's um, warning people not to return to Judaism. And so the question is, if Judaism is a, already a, a gracious system of salvation, then what is it that Paul is, uh, is opposing? Why does he oppose Judaism? For traditional Protestants, the answer is, is this. First century Judaism is, is a form of works righteousness. People are trying to keep the law in order to make themselves acceptable to God. And Paul comes along saying, no, you can't do that. You have to rely on the grace of God that's manifested in Jesus Christ, and you trust in Jesus for salvation and justification. But if the first, if first century Judaism is not what traditional Protestant theology said it was, then you have to have this revised understanding of what Paul's talking about. That's where you get a variety of different positions. It's not all one thing. You have different, different ways of assessing what Paul's up to. Some, some people working, with, working against the background of E.P. Sanders' work on Judaism will say that Paul distorts Judaism, that he's actually not presenting Judaism as, uh, he's not presenting it fairly. 
That's not the position of N.T. Wright, for example, or James Dunn, or even E.P. Sanders, or others in that school. The question comes up because of revised understanding of duties, and that's, that's mainly what I'm getting at. And then the, uh, the variety of different positions that, um, that result of that, uh, of that reconsideration and are offshoots of what's called the new perspective. But as I said, that's, that is a, one movement of a number of significant movements in recent Pauline studies, and it's one that's been around the most, and it's the one that's been debated the most, I suppose. But there are other, other developments recently that uh, we could discuss. But the new perspective or the new perspectives, if we want to, uh, to pluralize that and make it more accurate, uh, is, uh, as I say, the most, one of the most well-known of the recent Pauline movements. One of the challenges here is recognizing just how important a certain reading of Paul was for Reformation arguments with Roman Catholics and the way in which the Pharisaic Jew was made into a sort of ideal type that represented something akin to a Roman Catholic perspective upon salvation. And so the challenge to that particular reading of Judaism is experienced by some as a challenge to the Reformation itself because the proof texts for many are seen against this particular representation of Judaism. And if Judaism actually doesn't have that character, then it throws certain of the exegetical foundation of the Reformation into question, in their mind at least. And the challenge of reading Paul is in part that we have to engage in a shadow reading, what's called a shadow reading of his opponents. We don't actually have their own voice the voice of the Judaizers, for instance. We don't know what sort of arguments they came up with. We can speculate, but what we have is Paul's response to them and Paul's representation of their arguments at certain points. And as we see those, we can maybe um, have some sort of reconstruction that is definitely speculative, but not entirely so, of what they actually argued, of how their position would be persuasive to some. And yet when we start to look at um, intertestamental and first century Judaism, and we see some of the things that Sanders and others have emphasized, then maybe it softens some of our portrayal of the Judaizers and helps us to recognize, well, maybe they weren't just engaged in the sort of soteriological squabbles that has tradition, as traditionally understood, there were more subtle points, and maybe the sticking point was not so much soteriology in a very abstract sense in terms of are we saved by faith or not, but the debate hinged maybe more upon questions of redemptive history. Those questions of soteriology were in the mix, but maybe not quite as important or prominent as um, Reformation readers have tended to see. And that challenge is one that has implications for our actual reading of the text. It has some implications for the way that we'll formulate our theologies of salvation. But when it actually comes down to the differences on um, do we believe that we are saved by grace through faith um, in Christ, through faith alone in Christ alone, it doesn't actually have the same um, determinative factor on those questions. So. I think we need to be careful of presuming that since that simply because there's a challenge to the Reformation exegesis of certain passages, that there's a challenge to the broader theological framework, I don't think that holds. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That uh, there are there are uh, uh, scholars who work in a in a pretty traditionally reformed framework that have been influenced by the new perspective. I think of Michael Byrd, for example. Wright speaks of himself as being a reformed theologian working within a generally reformed understanding of soteriology. When he talks about justification, it's it has nuances and 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 the dimensions that are not prominent in most Reformation discussions. But uh, on some fundamental points, like the the forensic idea, the forensic reality of reform of justification, that it's a it's a legal declaration. That's something that, and, and certainly that it's unmerited. That's something that Wright is fully fully affirms. I think that a, a couple thoughts on the on the Reformation. I think that's that's a really good point, Alistair. That uh, it throws the exegesis behind the Reformation, between Reformation sociology into question. And what it often puts into prominence is more ecclesial or even sociological kinds of questions. This is the direction that James Dunn, for example, goes on his, uh, in his discussion of his essays on the new perspective. He's the one who coined the phrase new perspective on Paul. And what he sees in Galatians, for example, is not a debate about obedience as a meritorious way of winning God's favor. Rather, the issues have to do with uh, what he calls boundary markers or identity markers. Uh, things like circumcision, practices like circumcision or food uh, adherence to food laws uh, or adherence to purity laws that are, have the function of distinguishing by practice Jews from Gentiles. And what Paul's objecting to is the fact that is the very fact that these are being used to separate Jews and Gentiles when uh, some new re- the new reality of Christ has come and in him there is no more Jew nor Gentile. So it, it pushes ecclesial questions and, and uh, sociological questions more to the forefront. The other thing that I've found intriguing is that even that has some Reformation roots. I've often, I've often pointed to uh, Calvin's treatise on an inventory of relics uh, as, uh, as a neglected treatise uh, uh, that uh, shows the agenda of the Reformation. It's, it's not about justification by faith. Is a kind of satirical piece where he's cataloging all of the relics that are scattered around Europe. He makes fun of the fact that there are, you know, more fragments of the cross. There are enough fragments of the cross scattered around Europe to build Noah's Ark, that kind of thing, that these are, these are not real. But at the center of his critique, I think, is that you have these apparent means of grace or these contact points with God that are misleading. They're, they're false because God hasn't promised to be present in fragments of the cross. God hasn't promised to be uh, present when you're, you know, you're venerating the foreskin of John the Baptist or something. God has promised to be present in his word. He's promised to be, come and wash us in the water of baptism. He's promised to come and meet us at the Lord's table. So there's this sacramental uh, critique that's part of the original Reformation uh, and as it continues on into the English Reformation, you have a, a lot of discussion about that dovetails very nicely with some of the new perspective stuff, a critique of Catholicism in terms of its sacramental theology and in terms of the, the identifying practices and boundary markers that Catholics use. So I, I think that uh, when, you put, when the, you put the new perspective into conversation with Reformation theology, different things emerge, but it still has a has a contact point with uh, what what the Reformation, uh, what the Reformation protest was all about. Something I found illuminating a while back was reading through T. H. L. Parker's commentaries on Romans uh, between 1532 and 1542, and we often think about this Reformation exegesis of key expressions like works of the law or the righteousness of God, 
which are very contested in the context of the um, debates around the new perspective on Paul. We think of them as having a fairly uniform perspective on these, the perspective that many Protestant Christians have been raised with. And yet there's a great variety of exegesis beneath these unified theological stances against the Roman Catholic Church. So I think, again, recognizing that variety and diversity of opinion, that that approach that is opposed very clearly to Roman Catholic soteriology, is quite capacious in terms of the exegesis that it allows for, and especially these contested expressions. So the idea that this is something upon which the Reformation hangs is not the case. That said, I think there are ways in which it has been taken by some that are troubling. And there, I think, it can be helpful to dig in a bit more deeply to Sanders' representation of Judaism as a religion of grace. And many have argued, for instance, that this is really failing to see the semi-Pelagian elements, for instance, in some of these Jewish perspectives. Others that, um, whether that seems to me to be maybe an anachronistic way of approaching them, but at least having a sharper taxonomy of grace can help us to speak in a way that takes on board many of the concerns of the traditional perspective on Paul coming through Luther and others, but also the concern of the new perspective to represent Jewish soteriology fairly and not to have a sort of straw man against which Pauline theology is drawn that is convenient for Reformation debates but not actually faithful to the history. And there I found the work of um, John Barclay very helpful. Now, I want to come back to Barclay in ju just a second, uh, but uh, uh, just another comment on picking up on something you said. I think that, I don't know that Sanders recognizes this, but the, dis the description he has of getting and staying in that kind of paradigm, in fact, fits fairly well with the late medieval understanding of soteriology. So uh, the, fact, the fact that he's... Uh, I mean, and, th and that's assuming that he's right about first century Judaism, which is a, a contested point. But he seems to think that this is uh, undermining the Reformation, uh, the Reformation paradigm, when in fact, that's, that was something very like the, the paradigm that they were attacking, as you said. But I, I know, Alistair, I think you're probably more familiar with Barclay's uh, Paul and the Gift than I am. But I think, yeah, he's a, he's a, I would say, a sympathetic critic of the new perspective and has focused particularly on the different ways that grace is understood and has tried to distinguish between different understandings of grace that are operative in uh, first century Judaism. So, I mean, part of his point is that Sanders can certainly say that first century Jewish soteriology is a soteriology of grace, but that's to say very little unless you specify exactly what kind of grace it is and the way that that's working in, this, in the system and in distinction from the way grace might be working in in uh, in Paul's theology, but I, Alistair, I think you probably are, have your fingertips on uh, Barclay better than I do. I'll let you elaborate. Yes, Barclay tries to have a taxonomy of grace, so he has what he calls six perfections of the gift or grace. And um, the first one is superabundance: the fact that grace is lavish; it has a supreme scale, and it's permanent. It's liberal. Um, think about the second: the singularity of the gift. That's seen as the fact that the giver is purely benevolent towards the one to whom they give. And the third is priority. The gift is given before any recipient's initiative. It's not 
anything that we've done to initiate the gift of God to us, then incongruity, the fact that the gift is given without any regard to the worth of the person to whom it's given. You're not giving to those who are deserving. Um, the fifth is efficacy, that the gift has the impact that it's designed to have upon the nature and agency of the person who receives it. And then non-circularity, the fact that the gift is not caught up into an ongoing cycle of reciprocity. Now, he presents these different, what he calls perfections of the gift. The point is not that every theology of grace must hold to all of these things. Most theologies of grace will not actually hold to each one of these points. For instance, the idea that um, we must have um, singularity and superabundance for some might lead to an understanding of universalism, that God must, because of the virtue of um, being purely benevolent, give the gift of salvation to every single person. And that's clearly not the case. So a theology of grace, to be a theology of grace on some, in some respect, does not need to hold every single one of these. And he argues even in the case of Paul that he doesn't hold every single one of these. But the point on which he argues that Pauline theology stands and falls is incongruity. So the gift of God's grace is given without regard to the worth of those to whom it is given. And he gives a taxonomy, this taxonomy of grace, and applies it to these different theologies of grace within Judaism, within Christianity, and shows that many of them compromise on that point of incongruity. And so to say that Pauline theology is a theology of grace, these intertestamental Jewish theologies are theologies of grace, is to miss the actual point upon which they are divide, divided, the point that Paul really cared about, the grace that those other theologies spoke of, a grace that did not take incongruity seriously, the fact that God gives salvation to the ungodly. If they don't take that point seriously, then to his mind, they're not theories of grace at all. They're theories of something that's quite other than the grace of God in the gospel. And for that reason, I think we have a better way of getting to grips with those elements that do seem gracious and maybe capture some aspect of the biblical teaching while still missing a central element and an element upon which the Pauline gospel can stand and fall. And in the process, I think he's also able to show why Luther and Calvin and others in their arguments about grace were maintaining something that is crucially important while still um, recognizing that the theologies of the intertestamental second temple Judaism approaches that are dealt with, with Sanders and others are not as they've been caricatured to be. But nonetheless, they're still positions with which Paul would have very clear and intense disagreement. Yeah, I, I want to highlight one thing that you that you said there, and that is that for, for Barclay, these different understandings of grace don't entail one another. So the fact that you emphasize the priority of grace, which, uh, again, on, if, if Sanders is right about Judaism, first century Judaism does emphasize the priority of grace, because it's, you get in by, by grace and you stand by obedience to the law. Uh, but that does not entail the incongruity of grace. These are these are uh, uh, these these are uh, distinct uh, uh, facets or understandings of grace that don't uh, don't mutually entail one another. So yeah, the, the, that that taxonomy and uh, uh, those kinds of distinctions are really helpful for uh, 
trying to assess what Sanders, what Sanders was saying in the different forms of the new perspective that come up afterwards. In the work I've done on Paul over the years, I've actually found a lot of stimulating material in the work of uh, J. Lewis Martin and uh, disciples that come from J. Lewis Martin. And uh, Martin's work emphasizes the apocalyptic character of the gospel. And it has this, like the new perspective, it has this kind of sociological or ecclesial foreground sociology and ecclesiology. I think a lot of that probably goes back to Christopher Stendhal's famous essay on Paul and, and the introspective conscience of the West, where he says that for Paul, the, the central question is not, it's not, the, it's not that he's got an anguished conscience as Luther had that he's trying to salve. That's not the question that's on Paul's mind. In fact, uh, Stendhal says that, the Lord ha- uh, that Paul rather has a strong conscience. What uh, plagues him is the the Jew-Gentile relation. It's this ecclesial question, the sociological slash ecclesial question that dominates Paul's letters. And uh, the apocalyptic emphasis that Martin has brings that out uh, to some, to particular, in a particular ways. And he focuses, for example, he's written on a lot on Galatians, uh, focuses on the antinomies that or- organized and the, uh, uh, the binaries that organized the ancient world. Like Jew-Gentile is a fundamental binary that organized the world, at least for Jews. That distinction was maintained. The gospel, uh, the gospel overrides that. And so you have this, this new thing coming into play. This, and it's not, it's not that the gospel brings some kind of new spiritual experience. It's bringing in, objectively speaking, it's bringing in a new kind of political and cultural world. And in Martin's view, that is at the center of what justification is about. In fact, he translates uh, dikaiao, justify, and the various cognates in uh, Paul's letters, not as justify, but as rectify. What, what God is doing is not merely bringing us back into good fellowship with him, so we stand righteous before him, but he's rectifying his world that has been divided up and fragmented by these different, different binaries. And this will come up in Colossians when we get to talking about the, the elementary principles of the world. But for uh, Martin, the elementary principles of the world have to do with these binaries. These are kind of this is the kind of the the um, the basic structures of the world that are now overcome and revised in the gospel. Um, and Martin is not saying that there are no antinomies or binaries under the gospel. He, he one of his essays is about apocalyptic antinomies that uh, the gospel introduces new kinds of divisions, even while it overrides these old divisions. And I found that in my, the work that I did on Galatians in the Delivered from the Elements of the World, I found Martin's work really helpful for, for seeing, seeing that dimension, what, what, uh, what's going on in, in Galatians in particular. I should put in a word, too, for uh, I found the new perspective compelling in a lot of respects from the first, and it was partly because I studied under uh, Richard Gaffin at Westminster Seminary. Uh, and Gaffin had already presented a a, a variety, a, 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 not a uh, it's not a new perspective understanding of Paul, but he he had a reformation of the Reformed version of Paul that had had its roots back in I think it has roots all the way back to Calvin. It has its roots in John Murray more recently, but for Gaffin, the, cent, the central reality of Pauline soteriology is is not justification, but union with Christ. And justification and sanctification, glorification and adoption are all different dimensions of the reality that we're united to Christ. That, I think, is compelling. It fits very nicely with the kinds of things that uh, uh, N.T. Wright says about Paul's theology. 
Uh, and uh, Gaffin also placed a great deal of emphasis. One of his books is Resurrection and Redemption. And he's developing the uh, centrality of resurrection in Paul's proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is not cross-centered only and, and in isolation from the resurrection, nor is the resurrection simply a matter of giving a kind of imprimatur to what happened on the cross. Cross and resurrection necessarily go together, and cross without resurrection is not a redemptive act. I think that's exactly right, uh, and it up, opens up some important dimensions. And also, the, again, the, uh, the emphasis on you with Christ can be given in ecclesial kind of development, because uh, if union with Christ is at the center of our soteriology, we're united to Christ as members of a body. We're not united to Christ in isolation as uh, separate individuals kind of pinned into Christ. We're, we become members of a body, which means that uh, soteriology and ecclesiology are bound up together in ways that, uh, at least in some versions of Reformed theology, uh, don't develop as much. Again, I think it does go back to Calvin. That Calvin has both an uh, obviously a Reformation soteriology and a very high view of the church. And what, what Gaffin does, I think, restores that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, integration. That relationship between soteriology and um, ecclesiology is framed for Gaffin. One of the categories that I found very helpful in his treatment is the recognition that soteriology in the New Testament is far more about the historia salutis than the ordo salutis. Um, it's the redemptive historical working out of God's salvation in history, um, in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension at God's right hand, and then the fact that he's going to be coming again to judge the living and the dead and to restore all things, that that is the context in which we understand our salvation, that by union with Christ, we have been included and become part of his destiny. So many of the things that we see in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, for instance, are not conversions from unbelief to faith, but from old covenant to new covenant. So Cornelius is a God-fearer before um, Peter ever meets with him. But through the apostle Peter, he is made part of the new covenant reality. And there's always a danger, I think, when we think about ecclesiology without recognizing its groundedness in the Historia Salutis, the redemptive historical narrative. First of all, it becomes secondary to um, soteriology. So we have the salvation of individuals, and then you have this social aspect by which they're joined together. Or you can have a sort of flat ecclesiology that is de-eschatologized, that becomes a matter merely of sanctified sociology. And this has always been a danger within certain understandings of salvation that play with favoured terms of the particular generation. So particularly within our context, the terms such as breaking down the binaries or um, rights, equality, inclusion, or a sort of anti-ritual approach, whatever it is, these things can be very popular. And so when you reorder your picture of salvation around a sort of ideal vision of society that is anti-ritual, that is inclusive, that breaks down binaries, you can end up with another sort of de-eschatologized understanding of salvation that is de-eschatologized just as much as certain of the extreme de-eschatologized soteriologies that arose within certain Protestant circles. 
And I see, for instance, someone like James Dunn and his argument that Paul's treatment of justification by faith is a challenge to ritual per se, or the way that even in Barclay, for all that I find helpful about him, he depends a lot upon language of inclusion or transgression, which is very trendy language. And it can give the impression that the Lord is just underwriting our social preferences, not that this is some new reality that has been established in time. The division between Jew and Gentile was a good thing in its time, but it was not designed to last forever. Now, Barclay is clear on that point, and he makes that point very helpfully in some places. But yet, this is always a danger that I think re-centering the history of salvation and having that as the foundation of our ecclesiology, rather than just ecclesiology, something that springs out of individual soteriology, it really helps us on that point. And it also, as a result, puts the story of Christ front and center. When we think about our salvation, the story of salvation focuses not upon abstract events such as regeneration, justification, sanctification, um, adoption, and glorification, these very abstract theological categories, but upon incarnation, upon crucifixion, upon resurrection, upon ascension and Pentecost. I found a couple of uh, uh, recent uh, writers helpful on, on some issues. Um, Matthew Bates has written a couple of books on understanding of faith, pistis, the Greek term. And one of the premises that he works from is that the gospel is a, is a royal announcement. It's an announcement that Jesus is the son of David who has uh, been proclaimed son of God by resurrection from the dead, as Paul says at the beginning of Romans. And he does some study of uh, contemporary Greek usage. And pistis in that context, in the context of royal or military life, pistis has to do with loyalty and allegiance to a commander, to the emperor. And so he, he speaks of faith not being, not reduced to a matter of belief. Virtually everyone agrees with that. Nor just, just a matter of trust, but something that has this fuller, fuller connotation of allegiance to, to have faith in Jesus is to take Jesus' side in his mission, in his uh, war against the idols, to take Jesus' side in life. Joshua Jipp has a, a book on Christ as King, which develops the same understanding of Paul's gospel as a as a royal announcement and bo- both of those i think are i found bates's work really helpful for filling out an understanding of of faith that uh, doesn't just reduce it to belief but again puts it in that puts it in that royal context because one of the things we one of the difficulties we have with uh, in talking about paul's theology which is what we've been discuss- discussing is the kind of literature the kind of sources rather that we have to uh, understand what Paul thought and what he taught. And although Paul's letters have sometimes been treated as if they were more or less treatises on theology, in fact, they're not. They're letters that have occasional purpose. They're, they're addressed often to specific problems in specific churches, uh, and they have um, a pastoral aim, always have a pastoral aim, because Paul's writing as an apostle and not simply as a kind of theologian who's just trying to, trying to make sure that the, the formulas get right. So, uh, and that, uh, that obviously is a, is a challenge, and that needs to be factored in into our understanding what Paul teaches, that, that he's, he's a pastoral theologian. I don't, I don't want to, I'm not suggesting that he's not a theologian. I think he's teaching, teaching theology, but he's teaching it in a different kind of context than 
than uh, modern theologians tend to operate in. There's always been this challenge of coming to Paul with certain preconceptions about what Paul could or could not teach. And many of the questions that people have about which Pauline or so-called Pauline epistles should we accept as actually Pauline have been determined by these preconceptions about Pauline ecclesiology, for instance, that Paul obviously can't hold the high ecclesiology that we find in some of um, his letters or the letters attributed to him. So obviously we must chop off those letters and focus just upon those letters within which we find a lower ecclesiology. And thinking about these questions, it's important to recognize just how much what seem to be the assured results of Pauline scholarship on the matter have been predetermined by a lot of preconceptions about the sorts of things that Paul could or could not teach. So the more that we start to recognize the breadth of Pauline theology and its richness and variegation, the more we'll actually find that we can welcome certain texts and integrate them into the very heart of our understanding of Pauline theology without feeling the same jarring tensions that certainly liberal Protestants have felt in the past. That tension is one that I found relieved in part by new perspective on Paul approaches, which help us to recognize just how important ecclesiology, for instance, is without just collapsing it into a mere sociology. This is salvation is worked out in the formation of a new body of people in Christ. And once that's recognized, many formally disputed letters of Paul actually start to fit in to the larger corpus quite neatly. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm